right. So third through fifth graders, or no, kindergarten through fifth graders, come on to the front. Meet your teachers here so you can go to class. Ages three-year-old to five-year-old, meet in the back. Um, Ronnie is not here today. Uh, his granddaughters are being baptized today down in Wichita. So he is going to celebrate with them. So that's exciting. And uh, we are always happy to give our elders an opportunity to share what God has laid on their hearts. So we have Mike Berg here to uh, bring a word uh, to us from Scripture this morning. So take it away, Mike. All right. Thank you. I was expecting to have to do this, so that's one thing. One thing I can check off my list. Kids, you can pretty much handle it on your own, but Eric got it for me. Um, last week, um, oh, first of all, good morning, church. Happy Mother's Day. Um, Glad to be up here, glad to see you this morning. Um, I think this uh, sermon, short little sermon series that Matt and I are going through in the last two weeks are uh, quite appropriate for today. Um, I think talking about God's love and the nature of biblical love is uh, particularly apropos on Mother's Day. I think that mothers probably are the closest thing to God's love that we have, that we can see. A mother when she's doing the right thing, the way she loves her kids. I think it's about the closest thing to God's real divine love that we have here on earth that's of, of our own power. Um, so I just want to say happy Mother's Day, all the moms out there. Kids, treat your moms right. Adult children, treat your mothers right too, not just the kids, not just the actual um, teenagers and preteens and little ones. Treat your moms right. Um, she loves you. I know she loves you, so um, I can only speak from experience. I know my mom loves me, so... Um, today's scripture is in John 15. If you want to go ahead and get your devices or your, your Bibles out and turn there, um, it's going to be a few minutes before I actually get to it, but if you have your thumb there and you're ready to go, um, then we'll, we'll get rolling. Um, Matt set the table for us last week. He did a pretty good job. I actually made a joke with him last week about kind of pretending to not have anything to say after, after what he said. He did a pretty good job. I was just going to come up here and say, well, enjoy the time, extra time with your mom and head off the stage. He said everything I had to say, but I think we decided that was probably not going to cut it. I have something prepared, so we'll probably go ahead and do it. Um, but if you weren't here last week or you didn't get a chance to see his online um, his sermon last week, it's about defining the nature of, of true godly love, um, giving us a biblical definition of what that looks like. I encourage you to go back and uh, watch that on our YouTube channel if you haven't had a chance to see that. Um, but let me give you a, re a real quick recap of what he discussed in case you haven't seen it. Um, he really talked about two things in particular. He talked about why love isn't so important, and then he gave us a couple of um, definitions of love and told us um, the difference between an earthly love and a heavenly love. Um, pop quiz, anybody out there remember why love is so important? Any? Any? Bueller? Sorry, no. Um, God's nature, it's explicit to who he is. God is love. He preached from that passage in 1 John last week that talked about if you do not know, if you do not have love for your brother, you do not know God, basically, because God is love right? It's explicit to who he is. It's essential to his nature. Um, and then he gave us a working definition. Um, he gave us two categories of love. He separated them into the love of satisfaction and the love of sacrifice. Um, the love of satisfaction is that inwardly love that looks to get things from people. Um, it's focused on me. It describes things that I find enjoyment in. Um, it's looking for my own satisfaction. And then he talked about the outwardly love that is called the love of sacrifice, that 
It's divine love. It's that heavenly love, that agape love that he talked about last week that is um, outwardly focused in nature. His definition, and it's one that I will probably refer to but not necessarily use often, is this love as a, as a divine love. Sorry, let me, I've got this written down. And I may have a typo there. Matt defined this love as, okay, the sacrificial love as. This is the definition. It's a divine love characterized by sacrifice and the pursuit of another person's good. It's the love that we're going to focus on today. I like to, I don't like to, I have referred to it as greater love here. It's that New Testament agape love. That it's a direct reference to verse 13 of our text today, which is greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. So that's what we're going to be talking about today, that greater love. Um, some background on the text, we're going to be looking at John 15, um, a, a pretty big portion of John 15, chapter 15, verses 1 through 17. Um, they actually only assigned me 9 through 17, but I thought it was really vital that we go over that 1 through 8 as well. It's important, that analogy that Jesus uses is important to understanding the rest of um, his lesson to his disciples. But some background on this text um, Chapters 13 through 16 of John are often referred to as the upper room discourse. It's the private ministry of Jesus with his disciples right before his crucifixion. Chapters 13 and 14 are the upper room, the, the last supper, the betrayal of, not literally the betrayal, but the, the leaving of Judas from the 12, um, Jesus having his last supper, setting out the, the elements for communion, all that stuff. And in between there in the Garden of Gethsemane is where we're going to be looking at. They're walking. Um, some people think that they're maybe passing a vineyard, and that's why he uses this analogy that he uses. But the point is, it's the last 12 hours of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. It's Thursday night of that Passion Week. Friday morning, he's going to be crucified. And so I think it's important to note that this is the last lesson that Jesus gives to all the remaining 11 of his disciples. So it's important for us to look at that and realize that as we read this. So if you'll turn to John 15 for me. It's going to be up here behind me, I think, but I'm going to read it. I read out of the NASB, so if it's a little different than the scripture that's usually up there, that's why. Jesus is the vine, followers are branches. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit... He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I am him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. 
Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, and for all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. Okay, um, the vine at the beginning of this is the stuff that I, I added in purposefully. I mean, I didn't add it, it was there. But I decided I had to go back and address before we got to the love one another stuff. Um, I think it's important to do that because um, knowing Jesus' audience here, these 11 disciples that he's speaking to come from a Jewish tradition. They were raised in the Jewish tr- church. Most of them were not learned in the way that their rabbis are learned, but they still had the first 12 years of their life where they went to that school for the most part. So they, they had this, um, these traditions and these images in their head already. So it's important that we talk about that. Um, the analogy here is that of a vine, a vine dresser, and then the branches of the vine. The question is, why does Jesus use this imagery? And the answer to that is that it's just rife. It's everywhere in the Old Testament. Um, Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea are just a few examples of places that God refers to the nation of Israel as a vine and himself as the vine dresser. Jesus is using this on purpose to display to his disciples to give them this picture of the things that are about to change in the next 12 hours, literally about to change when he goes to the cross, right? He says, no longer is Israel the vine. I am the true vine right? No longer are you attached to God through this nation, this covenant that has been made for you. You are now attached to God through me, Jesus, right? Um, He's taken the place of God's true planting. It's now through him that we become attached to God and that we bear fruit. An important fruit that we bear is what we're going to talk about today, this greater love, this sacrificial love that is outwardly focused and more interested in the good of others than in satisfying ourselves. Okay, so there's three things that I think this text just screams to me as I read it about this greater love, about this fruit that we are to bear when it comes to loving each other. The first one is this, um, it's that it is an extension. Um, Greater love is an extension. It's something that happens through me only when I am in Christ. It happens not of my own power. It happens through his power. Let's go back and and read verse 5. It says this. Look at verse 5 with me. It's not going to be back up there. They didn't do it that way. But if you've got your Bible still in front of you. It says, I am the vine. You are the branches who abides in me and I in him. He bears much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing. Jesus makes it pretty clear that he's the reason for this love. I've got a little object lesson here. So I didn't, this isn't mine, I stole this. I saw this online, so full credit to uh, Francis Chan, actually, is who I saw do this, so um, in a similar sermon. Um, But basically, I got a branch here that I pulled off a tree out there. I broke it off the tree. Oh, yeah, so this is us, the representative of us, and the tree is Jesus in that case, and God is... The, the, the maker of the tree, the, the person who makes the tree grow, right? So the question is, let's pretend it's an apple tree. It's not, I know that, but let's pretend this is a fruit-bearing tree. How can we make this branch make fruit? 
right? What can you and I do, or what can the branch of itself do, even if you want to put it that way, to make fruit, to produce an apple? There's nothing. You're right. That's the right answer. Nothing. There's nothing I could do, particularly after I've broken it from the tree, right? If it's been separated or the attachment was not there to begin with, there's nothing that can happen, right? It is the tree itself that produces the fruit in the branch. The interesting thing is, though, the branch is also necessary. If you've ever seen a fruit-bearing tree, fruit does not typically grow on the trunk of the tree. The part that we would call the tree, the part that is Jesus in the analogy, right, does not produce the fruit. The fruit is produced on the branches. A healthy branch, when connected to that trunk, to that tree, is only able to produce branches, not of its own will, not of its own doing, not even of its own knowledge, but because it is attached to that tree, right? There's nothing that I can do in this analogy to produce fruit. Now, it breaks down there a little bit because I can, you know, try through my own strength, my own knowledge, my own will, and do some good in the world, right? There's lots of causes that lots of people give to and do things, even if they're not attached to Jesus. So it's not a perfect analogy. But the point is that that true fruit, that lasting fruit, that, that fruit of sacrificial love that puts you before me in my life is only possible when I'm attached to the, the vine, when I'm attached to that tree. It's supernatural, and it's something that I am incapable of my own. I can set myself aside for an hour, maybe a day, maybe even a week, but eventually it's going to catch up to me, and I'm going to do something selfish. I'm going to put me in front of you. I'm going to love me more than I love you. The only way that that works is when I put myself aside and I let God work. I let the Spirit work in me. Um, because the, the truth of it is I'm selfish and I'm flawed. Um, I, I don't get it right most of the time, let alone all of the time, I think, right? Um, the, the balance here, though, is that I do have a part to play, right? Um, it's not just God. It can be easy to just say, God, you do the work. I'm just going to sit back and watch TV or I'm just going to, you know, sit back and do nothing. And that's not true either. There is a work to be done. Um, it originates from Christ, this love, through the vine, but it flows through us. Without the branch, the fruit's not there, right? The trunk itself is not the producer of the fruit. It's the branch. Um, C.S. Lewis talks about it in his classic work, The Four Loves, in his chapter on charity, which is what he calls this divine, this agape love. He says this. Um, he compares sacrificial love to a garden. He uses this symbol to explain that for human love to change from its natural form into divine love, it needs both God's grace and human effort. He says that like a garden, love requires constant tending. Weeding out of the natural elements of human love and pruning the disproportionate bits that threaten to choke out the divine love or stunt its growth. The garden also needs the reign of God's grace in order to thrive. Both human and divine contributions are necessary. When a garden is in full bloom, the gardener's efforts appear small compared to what God does, the efforts of nature. But that doesn't mean that those efforts are dispensable. It doesn't mean that they're not necessary. Presumably without them, the garden would run wild and it wouldn't have been as fruitful or as beautiful as it is when the gardener, the human gardener, comes and tends it. 
So then the question is, what is our part in the blossoming of greater love? If it's God in us, then what is it our responsibility to do? We can see this in verses 9 through 10. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So what do we do? We're to remain in him, to abide, right? How do we do that? It's by keeping his commandments. When we obey him, we demonstrate our love for him. The question that I struggle with is how do I obey God unless I know what his commandments are? Um, Ever since, it was sometime in 2020, about the time of the outbreak of COVID, that it really struck me. And I don't know, I've read this verse. It's chapter 15, verse 10, one that I just read there. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abided in his love. It really struck me sometime in that time that I didn't have a, like, I, I kind of had a working knowledge, but I didn't have, like, a, an expert knowledge of God's commandments. Uh, it really struck me at that time that if I wanted to do what Christ said to do, I had to know in the moment what Christ said to do. As you know, God... Jesus in the New Testament gives 49 commandments. I didn't know that before I did this, right? 49 commandments. 49 do this statements, right? Which I can't verbatim repeat them all off the top of my head, but I'm working towards that. That's kind of the goal, right? Um, It's given me a renewed focus on scripture memorization. And this is why. When Jesus' root, sorry, I read that wrong. When Jesus' word takes root and comes to dwell in our hearts and minds, Those words begin to govern our attitudes and our actions. To be in his word daily is essential to knowing him. And to love him means to do what he says to do. Just as a child can show love to their parents by honoring and obeying them, we remain in Christ by following his commands. This obedience must stem from love and a genuine desire to know and be known by God. Because without that, it can delve into pharisaical observance of the law, which from the outside looks holy, but is empty like a whitewashed tomb. And in my opinion, this is one of the greatest and most dangerous cancers that plagues the church today and has for a thousand years, for thousands of years, right? This idea that the law saves me, that if I do the right thing, I am clean, and that is not the truth. The observance of the law is a byproduct of knowing and loving Jesus. In and of itself, it does nothing for us. It's just a fake it till you make it situation, right? Which is not true. If I fake it, I'm not going to make it. Only Jesus can make it. And it's my love, the love I have for him and the love that he has for me that allows me to do this, to practice this supernatural love. Okay, moving on. The second truth that this text screams to me is that greater love is expensive, okay? Um, It's costly. This is clear in verses 12 and 13. It says, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. I think it's important to... uh, take into context of this passage because Jesus is doing two things here. He's literally telling his disciples, hey guys, I'm about to die for you, right? It's less than 12 hours 
from the cross. He's having a conversation with 11 people that says, you're my friends. I'm going to die so that you can live, so that you can know life in its fullest, so that you can have a relationship with my father. So he's literally doing that, but he's also having a conversation with us today and telling us the expectation of his church as a whole, right? Um, the literalness of his commandments sometimes is something that I struggle with because, like I said here, there's a literalness here of him and them. If he's speaking to the disciples, I think his expectation of them is to suffer and die for his cause. We see this throughout the history of the church, right? Ten of these guys. There's 11 left. Judas is already gone. He's probably at this moment with the Pharisees, with the leaders of the Jewish nation, betraying Jesus making plans to come and get him. But the other 11 of them are there, and 10 of them are going to die gruesome deaths for Jesus. They're going to be crucified upside down. They're going to be boiled in oil. They're going to be set on fire. They're going to be fed to wild animals, right? There's an expectation literally of them that they're going to die in the same way that he died, or in a similar way. The only one, John, who's actually the author of this passage that doesn't that, still suffers and then dies in exile on an island, right? So there's a literal expectation. I think that most of us in the church today, though, would not have this literal expectation on ourselves. I don't know personally that God has called me to die a gruesome death for him. Maybe. Maybe it just hasn't happened yet, and maybe it's in the future. And I think that there are, it's healthy to have an expectation that that could be possible, but I don't think that's literally the call for all of us, right? It's not literal, literally a call to die for the sake of our friends. Um, but I think it is clear that dying to yourself, denying yourself, there's a metaphor here. There's a, there's a hyperbolic truth, if you know what that means, um, that... Uh, we are to lay our lives down for his sake. He tells us this multiple places. He says in Luke 9, um, he tells his followers to deny themselves daily, to take up their cross and follow him. Um, so I wrestle with this. I kind of already said this. I wrestle with how literally to take some of these commandments. Um, Matthew is just rife with these commandments that are like, is he speaking directly to me? Is it a metaphor? Is it hyperbole? Like, what's going on? Some of the examples that I struggle with, in Matthew 19, he tells the rich young ruler to go and sell everything and give all of the proceeds to the poor, right? I struggle with that. There are days when I think I need to sell my house and I need to go, you know, give all of that away because I'm pretty blessed, right? Those aren't, that's not every day. Um, in Matthew 5, he says, if I look at a woman lustfully, I'm supposed to pluck my eye out. If my right hand causes me to sin, I'm supposed to chop it off. Obviously, I haven't done either of those things, so I don't know how literal I'm supposed to take that. Um, I think that the truth of it is, oh, one last one, Matthew 5, later in Matthew 5, he says, if someone hits you on the right cheek, turn to him your left cheek and let him hit you there as well, which that was, that's probably the one that I take most literally. Um, I've had this conversation with a lot of people. I consider myself a pacifist and like hands... Balls and fists is like my last resort. I'd rather be beat up than get in a fight like that because I take this passage so literally. But I think that's the spirit in me directing me. And I think that what I've come to learn is that the spirit directs us all differently. He gives us all passions and he gives us all things that we take that maybe it is literally for me, but it's not literal for you. 
right? Maybe it's just a metaphor for you and it's, it's a greater truth, but maybe it's literal for me that I'm not supposed to do that, right? And it's tricky when you get into that because I think a lot of his commandments are literal. When he says, love your enemy and pray for your, those who persecute you, I think that's literal. I think that means don't go out of your way to take an eye for an eye, to do bad things to people, right? So it's tricky. I struggle with that. I wrestle with that pretty much on a daily basis. This here is the same thing. What does it look like? What does it mean to die to myself? What does it mean to put my life down so that someone else can live? I can't answer that for you, but I can tell you what the Spirit's leading in me. Um, If I'm going to be honest, my Prayer pretty often is, God, kill my will, kill my self, whatever you want to call it. Not literally me, but my, my desires, right? So that the Holy Spirit can live in me. 100% truth here. I'm, I'm not good. I'm pretty awful. I hurt people. I'm always thinking about myself. I just want to do what I feel like doing in the moment, most of the time, right? That is my nature, And that's not who God has called me to be. So my prayer is, kill that. Kill those thoughts. Kill those inclinations so that you can love through me. Because I'm not capable of that love on my own. I think that that could be just me, but I kind of doubt it. I probably think that that's more of us than we'd like to admit. Um, I think... Whether we take this literally or we take this as hyperbole, that it's pretty obvious, though, and it is clear that there is an expectation of self-denial here, right? Um, And in our world, that self-denial is really pricey because we live in a world that tells us me, 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 self-love, me first. You do you is something I hear often, right? Do what makes you happy. Right? This is the exact opposite of what we are being called here. That's an earthly love, and it's a valid love. It's a, it's a love that is good, that God gave us things to enjoy, and we're supposed to enjoy them. But as Christians and disciples of Christ, we are called to a higher love, a harder love that sets that aside much of the time. Um, I don't know what that's going to cost you. I think that's a question you have to ask yourself. Um, but I think the important question is, Um, is it costing you something? I'll come back to that. Um, It is going to cost. The cost is likely to be steep. In Matthew 7, Jesus tells us that the way that leads to life is narrow and the gate is small and that few will find it. That's because following him and loving others sacrificially is hard and it's not fun. David Platt, the pastor, says it this way. The road that leads to heaven is risky, lonely, and costly in this world, and few are willing to pay the price. Following Jesus involves losing your life and finding new life in him. Honestly, if you think that following Jesus is easy, I kind of doubt that you're doing it right. If you think that loving other people in a way that's sacrificial to yourself is easy, you're probably not really loving them sacrificially. I think if we admit that to ourselves, we can go a long way with this. The implication here is obvious, I think. I think, like I said, we need to ask ourselves this question. What has following Jesus cost me? What has loving others cost me? 
If I can't answer that, or the answer is, you know, not that much, then maybe I'm not doing it. Maybe I'm not doing it the way he's asked me to do it. Um, Matt said it last week. There are people who go to church every Sunday, attend Bible classes, and maybe even are a part of a small group who have never even considered loving others sacrificially. And maybe, just maybe, those same people have a supernatural, I said supernatural when I meant superficial, pardon me, superficial attachment to the vine. They are the branches in this picture that the vine dresser gathers up and casts into the fire. Later in Matthew 7, Jesus says that not everyone who claims to know him will enter the kingdom of heaven. People may prophesy in his name, cast out demons, and even do miracles, and yet he will declare to them on judgment day that he never knew them. That's a scary truth. It's a hard truth to accept because it means that I could be sitting in these pews for years and if my life does not reflect this love, then maybe I don't really know Jesus. All right, lastly, greater love is expected. Greater love is not an option. It's an if-then. Look back at me at verse 8 and verse 16. Verse 8 says this, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. If we are his disciples, then we will bear much fruit. It says it right there. It's almost a promise. He says, if this, if you follow me, if you abide in me, if you do what I command, you will bear fruit. You will have a visible manifestation of that love, right? Those things, those gifts of the Spirit, that supernatural love, however you want to put it. You will bear fruit if you remain in Jesus. If we are his disciples, we will bear fruit. And I think first amongst this fruit is this sacrificial love for one another. Something I want to make abundantly clear here in this passage, Jesus is talking to his disciples about his disciples. He's not speaking about the way that we love the world, although he does say a lot about that. I'm just not addressing that in this. There's lots of ways he tells us to sacrificially love the world. But this specific passage is about love for each other. People in Christ being good to each other and sacrificing for each other, right? He talked about this a few verses, chapters earlier in this upper room discourse. During the Last Supper, chapter 13, verse 35 says this, By this all men will know that you are my, my disciples. If you have love for one another. This love is not just expected from us. It is foundational to who we are. In fact, it is the mark of a true disciple. Our most obvious and distinguishing characteristic is the love that we have for each other. If we do not love each other, we do not love him. He says that pretty clearly. As we saw last week in 1 John, it is clear, whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. 
Love is the essence of who he is, and if we truly know him and experience his love towards us, it is impossible for that love to not flow through and from us. Whew, that's actually great news. That takes a huge burden off of my shoulders. It means I don't have to be responsible for putting you always every day, because if I make plans and I make strategies and I do all those things, that's me relying on me and not re me relying on him, right? The truth of the matter is that he's the one doing it. He does it through me. I can make these lists. I can give you endless strategies of loving others sacrificially, but at the end of the day, all of that is fruitless because the truth of the matter is this. That's not what really matters. The how I do it is not the important part. The only thing that matters, the only thing you have to do is love Jesus. Know and be known by him. If you seek him and you love him and you devote yourself to him, love follows. Love is natural to that state. Love is the byproduct of that. The greatest commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. Everything else comes from that. Even the next one, which he says, and second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. You can't love your neighbor as yourself if you don't first love God with all of yourself. If I love him the way that he's called me to love him, he will change me and love me so that I am able to put others first. Even me, the worst of sinners. I can worry about it. I can practice it. I can come up with programs and strategies to love sacrificially. But the truth of the matter is that the only strategy you need is love Jesus, right? Any strategy other than that will work if you love Jesus and won't work if you don't. An example from the Old Testament. If you know God, you can take a slingshot into a battle with a giant and you're going to win because God's doing the winning, right? And if I don't know God, it doesn't matter how many top 10 lists, how many programs, how many strategies I have, at the end of the day, nothing's going to work because I'm going to fail because I'm trying to do it myself. No matter what good I want to do, no matter how much I want to love others. At the end of the day, if my strategy isn't be a lover of Jesus, then I will fail. I've said this, I'm gonna say it again. If you have one thing that sticks with you this morning, this is it. To know God and to be known by him. That's it. To know God and be known by him. Francis Chan tells a story about being Moses. I'm going to do my best to repeat it because I script everything and I added this this morning and I didn't have time to script it all, so bear with me a little bit. Um, he tells a story about how in his ministry he's often been Moses to people. In the, this, the, the analogy is that in the Old Testament in Exodus, after the, God's people have left Egypt and gone into the desert, gone into the wilderness. Three months later, they come to Mount Sinai and God makes a decision that he wants to appear to them. He wants to come down from the mountain and show himself in his glory to his people, but he gives them all of these like stipulations. He says, don't do this, don't do that, don't say this, because if you do, you'll die. 
right? And so this really scares the people and they say, uh-uh, nope, I don't want to see God if it means I have to be careful because yeah, I may forget and I may die, right? So they say, Moses, you go up on the mountain and you meet with God and then you come and tell us what God said, right? And so Francis says this is who he became in his ministry. He would daily and weekly meet with God on the mountain. He would go up, he would go into God's presence, he would meet with him, he would bask in his glory, he would love him and let God love him in return, and then he would come back and tell people about it. He would give people message about God's love. And what he came to realize was that he was doing a great disservice to his people because by doing that, he was allowing them to not meet with God themselves, right? The New Testament did away with the tabernacle. This is a whole different thing. After Moses comes down from the mountain, he brings down the Ten Commandments. They put them in the Ark of the Covenant. God gives them instructions to build a tabernacle, right? And then it can move with them. His presence lives in that tabernacle. And you have to go to that place to be in God's presence on earth, right? And it came to over thousands of years after the temple was built that um, only one person one time a year could enter into the presence of God. The Holy of Holies, the high priest would have to do these rituals where he cleaned himself and then once a year, right? There was a big curtain that kept that separate from the rest of the temple. And when Jesus died, the gospels are very clear. That curtain was ripped. Jesus becomes in that moment of his death, our high priest. He has made it so that we can come into contact with God daily. We can come into his presence. And I guess what I want to leave with you is that Knowing him means pursuing him, means coming into his presence, means kneeling before him in his great glory, right? And it's a disservice that we're doing to you if we're allowing Ronnie to be Moses or we're allowing Matt to be Moses. We don't need a high priest anymore other than Jesus. You can meet with God now. You can go home and do it today, right? I want to leave you with this. It's a prayer that I modified from David's Psalm 27.4. So if you'll bow with me. One thing I ask, O Lord, let this be the prayer of my heart, that we may dwell in your house all the days of our lives, that we, we may behold the beauty of your, you, Lord, and meditate in your temple, in your son's holy name. Amen.